This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Heretical. This is a little bit of a special episode because we are on location deep in the back country of... We're in Tim's backyard in Bend, Oregon, which is where this whole podcast started at a different house. But here in Bend, in Tim's backyard in a shed, we're in a a field today just recording in the sunshine because uh, me and my family are out visiting here and uh okay but that means this episode's going to come with a couple of caveats you could hear the sound of dogs barking chickens what did you what do chickens do clucking squawking squawking pecking um kids could yell at any given time what else tim is there any other sounds that they might hear some terrifying combination of kids chickens and dogs <laughs> yeah so anyways all i have to say we couldn't pass up the sunshine outside recording together um, and you get nature sounds as a result. All right, so Tim, what are we doing this week? Yeah, it's going to be a bit of a grab bag. We'll just see where this goes. But I think there will be a little bit of follow-up on uh, the last conversation about the Bible and some texts in the Bible that seem to maybe be condoning rape. And we'll talk about uh, that a little bit more, but in a more broad conversation on the complexities of the Bible do we take things literal? Do we not? Some of the problems with approaches. So we'll just kind of see where this one goes. But uh, my my plan for this is to call this episode uh, our Choose Your Own Adventure Bible. Uh, so that's where we'll at least try to get to. Did you have the Adventure Bible? Uh, it's been on the shelf. I've never really. The comic book one? No, no. I just mean there was like, I think it was NIV. And I remember the front of it. If you had the hardback version, the front of it was like one of those, uh, if you turned it it like glimmered a hologram it kind of yeah and uh and i think it was called the new the adventure bible or the new adventure bible it was like the most popular i think kids bible the new adventure bible but this is a choose your own adventure this is kind of like at the end of the movie you get to decide what happens to the characters is that what you're talking about alternate endings uh yeah sort of we'll we'll work our way there and uh hopefully we get there you guys probably know by now half the time we know get where we think we're gonna go and uh, we end up down a rabbit hole, a bunny, a bunny hole, as Nate affectionately calls them. Which we may be able to find here in the setting that we're recording in right now. I'm looking around. Okay, let's go down the bunny hole. Here come the chickens. <laughs> They're creeping over here. Okay, so maybe I'll just I'll, uh, throw something your way, and then we'll play at least one listener question. But I guess uh, we talked a little bit after the the last episode I shared on a recent conference call with some of our uh, show supporters that I felt sort of hung over after doing that last episode um, because it felt the closest to me of getting to the point where we just sort of like condemn the Bible and and make it look so bad that we all just want to run away from the thing. And uh, that wasn't my goal. Uh, it's never my goal, but it's also not my goal to like protect us from seeing what is real. Um, so I had shared, I sort of felt, uh, yeah, like hungover is the best I can describe, but basically it wasn't a fun episode to do. It wasn't a fun episode to listen back to. Um, I wish I didn't come to the conclusion I did that there are texts in the Bible that are condoning the subjugation of women. But I also 
basically want to come back to it because I don't think we spend enough time to to talk about whether the Bible itself is condoning those texts that are condoning that subjugation. And that, I think, is uh, a bigger, more complex uh, question. So let me just throw it to you, Nate. Do, do you feel uncomfortable with that last conversation? Uh, or are you, were you disturbed by it? Well, I think like kind of how I answered that one listener question, which was that I have come to think of the Bible differently. So I wasn't as disturbed with that. I don't have the Bible on this pedestal where it's supposed to speak accurately and speak like perfectly to the situation that we're in right now and the time that we're in and the ethical conversations that we're having. So if I place the Bible where it's supposed to be like in history as a historical text, I don't expect that they had better views on women, sexuality, gender than uh, the other people groups at the time. So maybe, I think the answer is yes, I, I am troubled by that if, if the Bible is something different than what I now believe that it is, right? So kind of yes and no. Yeah, I gotcha. I think part of the reason I was feeling uncomfortable is there are plenty of people out there who don't like uh, Christianity or don't like religion in general or don't like the Bible. And I mean, many of them uh, for good reasons. So I don't dismiss these people out of hand. But there are a lot of people that because of that will go to the Bible and um, and try to find as many problems in it as possible, ethical problems, reasons right, why yeah. we should move away from it. Yeah. And usually those people do the same thing with the Bible that fundamentalists do is they take it as it's meant to be read literally, right? And so if you take these laws literally, right, then they're egregious laws today. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take some of these passages sort of woodenly as prescriptive, then of course we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't want to use them today. Like they look at you and they say, this is what your book says in it. Like it has this in it, it has this right. in it. Right, and so my question both to those people and to fundamentalists is like, but is this book saying that's what these texts are here for, right? And so I think the last episode... On one hand, I want to be really brutally honest. I'm not like rescinding our whole conversation. Yeah. Saying, yes, there are texts that to me it's clear whoever wrote these words originally uh, held egregious views of women. But what I want to do is zoom out and go back to uh, what to me is my my favorite working metaphor for what the Bible is, is a mosaic, a, a patchwork of pieces of texts that all of every word, every sentence and every uh, text has been arranged into a shape by somebody after the time that these texts were written. Mm. And I think part of what we talked about with Tim Mackey is they've been arranged in a way with such an intelligent design written into the text that at least the texts were altered when they were arranged. Um, So like in the imagery of a mosaic, you take... uh, you know, say it's a tile mosaic. So you have individual square tiles, for instance, with uh, pictures or colors or or paint on each tile. You not only are finding the right uh, color or the right part of an image to fit into your overall, say, a wall to make a bigger, grander picture, but you're breaking the tile to fit the right shape so it fits next to something else. You're changing what was the original text in order to to fit it next to something else. And I think what we've just seen is there's evidence that there's also additions to those texts. So in the metaphor, it'd be like someone comes along with touch-up paint and is like adding little bits to the corners of each tile 
even sometimes adding things in the middle of the tile. And so then we get back to this question, like, okay, if that's even close to an accurate description of what's happening in the Bible, then what does it mean if individual (laughs) sexist pieces of tile are in this overarching whole, right? Does that mean the overarching whole is is put to, putting together a sexist image or another way of putting it is like if if there are pieces of text that are condoning rape or condoning the overall subjugation of women does that necessarily imply that the that the assembled collection of pieces is condoning what those texts condone or even condoning those texts are you going to try to make a case that whoever redacted and edited the Bible intentionally left those things in there and we're supposed to see that they are evil and bad. And cause I think that's a reach. No, 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 not even intention. So, um, yeah. So one listener reached out this week and, uh, a friend of the show and haven't had time to respond an email, but the question was sort of like, it sounded like I was pretty dismissive of, uh, Greg Boyd's approach to old Testament. Uh, when we talked about sort of different, traditional approaches to how do we handle sort of the ugly stuff. Give me, give me Greg Boyd's in the Old Testament. Real quick. Yeah, like so part of the problem is I haven't, I'll just be honest, I haven't had time to sit down and read uh, his big new, I don't know, thousand page work. Um, so I think I sort of have a rough estimate of his view. Um, but I think part of his view is that, similar to what you just said, Nate, is that what inspiration included, this idea of divine inspiration, was that sin was actually encaptured in the texts intentionally by God in order to create a kind of contrast for us. Now, Greg Boyd's argument and his theology is way more complex and uh, nuanced than that. So this, there's just that piece of it is something that I, uh, I'm not a proponent of and I sort of take issue with. I'm not making an apologetic. Like I'm not interested in defending uh, the ethics of the Bible. I don't think we need to do that. I'm interested in just like seeing what this thing is really about and helping us uh, learn what to do with it. So I, I'm not making that case that there is some overarching positive purpose. But my point is, say you're making a mosaic yourself, if this is yeah. uh, the thing. And your goal, you know, we can talk about what the overarching message of the Bible is, what the overarching themes, what the... Um, the goal of the images, I think you can make a case that the main storyline of the Bible is God and humanity supposed to be together and that falls apart and then that is trying to find a resolution. But then you could come up with a hundred different other big themes that are woven throughout that the different texts are trying to, to bring up. Um, so whatever your main point you're trying to get across in your piece of art, say you use a a piece of tile say you have a thousand pieces of tile and one of your pieces of tile is let's just say we use this as a kind of moral example all the time is a picture a portrait picture of adolf hitler and you say break you know a piece of that tile so you've got like three quarters of adolf hitler's face and it fits in and so when you're standing at the way back at the back of the room and you look at it it just looks like a piece of skin color of this greater picture but when you zoom up you're like holy crap what is Adolf Hitler doing in, you know, in my Bible or on this piece of art? I imagine it's also pretty fun to take a sledgehammer to a tile of, of Adolf Hitler. Of Adolf, yeah. Adolf Hitler's face. But anyways, so this, this analogy is probably a stretch in a hundred ways. But if 
my question, I don't even have an answer. Uh, I'll just put it to you, Nate, and to everybody listening. Is like, does that mean if you or I were to be the overall artist who's making that mosaic, does does our inclusion of a piece of Adolf Hitler in an overall piece that's painting, say, a picture of a mountain, does that mean that we are putting? Does that mean it's an image of Adolf Hitler? Does this is so. This is so funny. Like this is this is funny because it's coming into some of the conversations we've been having at work. I work at uh, Buffer, which is a really cool forward-thinking uh, tech company. And But what we do is we're a social media scheduling tool, kind of like Hootsuite or some of these other ones out there. And so one of the conversations we have is like specifically with like Twitter and Facebook's content moderation guidelines and, and rules that they have. You know, the liberals think they're too conservative, the conservative things that conservatives think they're too liberal that kind of they can't please everybody with their how they um pull certain posts or whatever but we've we've talked about like should we have our own kind of guidelines i guess for when we ban a post or when we uh you know what those would be Hmm. half the team thinks like we should keep certain things from going out on social media and you know but then other people think and, and i kind of see where they're coming from like we should let those views and this is a little different than what you're saying, but we should let all those views go out and then let people push back on them, mm-hmm. get them out there. Don't let them leave them in hiding, but let, let people, let the general public then say, like, no, that's a bad idea or this is bad because of X, Y, and Z. And let at least let the ideas go out there. And I, I see that's like a little bit different than what you're saying, but it's also similar in that just because you're using a story or let's say like we, we talked about the Holocaust or Adolf Hitler's ideas, just because you're using them, you're not necessarily using them in a positive light. You're not necessarily using them in a negative light, you're just using it to say this happened. It could just be a historical thing, like saying this happened, right. or you could be using it in a negative light, or you could be using it to make a larger point. But yeah, I, I see what you mean. Like just because it's there doesn't mean that you're saying I'm pro Adolf Hitler and right. But I think pro Holocaust. Yeah, it's a it's a good analogy, and you know, beyond just social media, there's been so much debate and hostile debate recently. Of you know, like legitimate newspapers holding conferences and inviting white supremacists yeah. to speak at their their event and people protesting and sort of this back and forth of, you know, like, why would you ever invite somebody? What do they have that's valid? It was Steve Bannon and it was the, was it Wall Street Journal or was it? No, was New York Chicago Times. Chicago Tribune or something. Oh, okay. Okay. Fact check us. We're probably wrong on that. But there, but actually there's been more than Steve Bannon. There's because sadly there are like many famous white supremacists in our country. Um, but so... I'll just admit, like, my gut reaction was, like, yeah, why give that person a platform? Like, that's just crazy. Like, just stop platforming Okay, them. that's where I am right now. So yeah. uh, how did you think differently about that? <laughs> well, but and then so I go, okay, in the mosaic thing, if I go to an art museum in that analogy I just said, and I, like, look up closely, I'm like, you know, oh, my gosh, there's a – someone snuck a, a picture of Adolf Hitler in here. I'm going, like, oh, this is, like, Nazi propaganda infiltrating this piece of art. Um, like, why did this need to be here? So I'm not like defending the Bible. I'm just, uh, saying it's a different, like you're saying, it's a different question. Uh, why was this piece here? And so my pushback with, with that view that it's here because God wanted it to be here. I'm like, I just think that's a strained view. I'm more comfortable, at least right now, just saying it's here (laughs) and it's here because humans wrote this thing, whatever that meant, whatever their process was, it's, it's here and people were human. And now I, I want to just be willing to say that's an ugly thing that's here. It's ugly. Um, Can I ask you a question that I think 
maybe some of our listeners would struggle with, but more so they would struggle trying to answer friends, family, community members in their church or something like that. But I feel like this question of, so then are you saying that the Bible is not divinely inspired? Are you saying the Bible is not, I didn't want to get to inerrant, but are you saying that God didn't, what we have isn't what God wanted us to have. Like, how would you, I know that's a really complex question, but yeah, it is how complex. Would you, how would you I, answer that? I want to pass the buck on that question for the rest of my life. Cause I just think it's a, it's a swamp, but basically I would say like what inspiration, I think most Christians know this is word based on breathing and God breathing spirit into something. So if we're going to say a text is inspired or the, the, the process of the writing of this text was inspired, we are saying that that is, that what we are reading here is the equivalent of what we see when we look at our Christian friends. That's, that is the moral, ethical, spiritual equivalent. <laughs> so if you don't think that your, your friend or you, and when you look in the mirror, who has been breathed in with the Holy Spirit, that is your core belief as a Christian. Uh, if you don't believe that that per- person is utterly perfect, incapable of, of doing any wrong, incapable of making a mistake, then why do you believe that the idea that uh, the text was a part of this overarching God sending God's spirit in order to help the world, uh, that that's part of how we got this text, or that's how we got this text, is this work of the, the spirit, the breath of God. There's just a massive chasm in my mind between inspiration and inerrancy. So then you just get there are different people that have different views on people in an inspiration camp, there are people in an inerrancy camp, and it's just different different things. Um, so that's a way too short and simple response. Um, I'll, like, you know, my, I've got a lot of thoughts. A lot of my thoughts on the way we should treat the Old Testament um, are diverse, and it's not easy to reduce to one simple, here's what we do, um, but instead is much more complex. And actually, that's kind of back to what I want to get into. So uh, let's play a listener question. Okay, yeah, I have it here. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Uh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Nate and Tim, it is Kalechi from Denver. So a while back, uh, I was introduced to your podcast because of the episode on slaveholder religion, and I was absolutely hooked. Um, But I've run into a bit of a disconnect that I'm hoping that you guys could help me with. So in the beginning of the series, it seems like a more literal interpretation of Genesis kind of brings us to a more cohesive understanding of the nature of God. 
Uh, and then oddly, there was some weird weight on genetics. Um, that's probably for another message. But in the more recent shows, there seems to be an advocating for a less literal translation of the Bible. So what is the barometer for determining what should be read literally versus uh, as a tapestry of ideas? Yeah, thanks, Kalechi. Uh, I want to play that um, because I think it uh, it's a good question. It's a really good question. And... Um, I think because it's putting its finger on a, on a tension, which isn't, uh, there's no simple yes or no to that. So I believe uh, the series he was referencing was the LGBTQ conversations that we did um, and how we went back and looked at Genesis 2. I think that's where that. And then comparing those with like that first series we did talking about like the divine council and all that stuff in Genesis. Right. And looking at how we've sort of whitewashed over or ignored those texts. But if you just take them at their plain reading, it's saying some really crazy stuff. Right. Yep. So yeah. totally get that. Even in a set of, say, the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Because it could sound like we we did that because it was convenient in Genesis to expand our minds and think about different things. And then when it comes to LGBTQ, we can almost like, quote unquote, get out of some of what the Bible says if you are a little bit less literal with the words. Totally, yeah. So this is something I just think all Christians or even just people interested in the Bible as a as a text just need to think about for a while. Is I, th- I think we have to decide <laughs> when the Bible, and when I say when the Bible, I mean when a... When you're reading a single sentence in the text, when you are to be reading that at face value, the word literal is kind of a skewed word at this point, but I, I totally get uh, your usage, Kletchi. Uh, whether we're to take that at face value or not, or to do something else with it, to allegorize it, to spiritualize it, to read it typologically in light of Jesus. Like, there are a lot of different ways that we can approach texts and different traditions. And usually it's more like, do we do this with the Bible or do we do that with the Bible? (laughs) And I think what's just simply true is there are times and places to do all of those different things. So again, let's look back at that mosaic idea. Like, the mo- the mosaic idea, one of the reasons I think it's most important to come up with some sort of imagery like this of a, of a quilt, which is what Tim Mackey uses, or, or this uh, mosaic, is because what that means is that there's another layer of purpose and agency between the, the writing of these texts and, and our approaching them in what we now have as our Bibles. Okay, but Tim, this, this then necessarily changes completely what the Bible is because now it is something that we can't use to just get our answers from like whatever we because Tim Mackey might interpret something a certain way and say this is the meaning of what this is supposed to, we're supposed to take from this and you might say something different than that and so how do we know who's right how do we know if, first of all it feels like I can't do this myself then you know this definitely doesn't feel like something I can just open up and get my little nugget from but also then it feels like you're deciding between like okay who's right then if a bunch of people feel this way about the bible that there were redactors that there were editors that uh it is trying to do something completely different than what we maybe thought then how do i know who's right and how they're how they're interpreting and how they're taking you know what i'm saying i do so yeah what i what i hear you expressing is that this complicates things, this muddies the waters, yeah. this makes the Bible potentially feel uh, 
more difficult and uh, unapproachable or uh, inaccessible. And I get why people, uh, especially people who are publicly, you know, teaching the Bible or advocating for whatever, why they feel like they need to not um, take the Bible from people and limit it to the role of the experts and the academics, right? I, I get that feeling. I'm not trying to say, listen to me, I know, uh, don't know for yourself. <laughs> we we'll actually get into, there's, I think, an important uh, part of that, why that psychology has existed, especially uh, in Protestant uh, church history. But, but here's the thing, <laughs> like, we do have to decide. We do every time we read a story, every time we read a poem, every time we read a law, we have to decide based on good rubrics and parameters and skill of, of reading a mosaic of literature, ancient literature written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. We have to, to de- develop the skills as a people, not necessarily all of us individually, but uh, as a collective people, to make interpretive decisions as we go. We can't just apply a one-size-fits-all, here's how you read the Bible, and apply that to every text. So, so again, like here's one of the most important uh, parts of the scripture, I think, in terms of uh, s- using this mosaic imagery is, is the Levitical laws. I think one just simple assumption that most Christians have made throughout time is that those is are that, laws for us. Yeah, because they are it. here, when I read them, when I read Leviticus 1, <laughs> it is telling me, reader, here is the law for you. So the Bible, I've mentioned this, the Bible doesn't say anywhere, these laws are here for you, reader. It, it includes all sorts of stuff about how Israel is supposed to write them on their heart and memorize them and the, the glory of the law and all that. It's like clearly telling a story about these people getting this law and the laws that they were given. And there's miles of difference between reading a book telling a story about laws that includes those laws as chapters in the yeah, story. Yeah, like I don't follow the rules that like Harry had at Hogwarts when I read <laughs> <laughs> when I read Harry Potter, right? Yeah, totally. So like, you know... The handling of, of how to think about the law in the Bible is complex. I think this is one important step. But if you're reading a book and you see a list, in if you know your book is a novel, right? When you come to that list, you're not going to think that list is something you're supposed to like cut out and put on your fridge and obey, say, all the rules on the list or eat all the foods that are on that list. If you're reading a psychology uh textbook, right? And like Psych 101 in your freshman year of college. And then the way you're going to approach the words in that text are going to be different. Everything you read there should be telling you how to do psychology, right? Or how to think about the brain, whatever. Uh, the, what we think these texts are, it plants in our brain a litany of assumptions about how the words within those texts are doing it. And I would just say the default assumption of conservative Protestant Christianity and the default assumption of the people trying to attack the Bible and Christianity and take it down is that this is a, I still don't have a good word for it, (laughs) something that's the opposite of a mosaic, is a unilateral text that is speaking one directionally from the the writers to the readers, us, uh, telling us it's speaking to us directly, and and whatever the original writing was, is what now our meaning is, 
And that's why I say part of the most important idea of this imagery of, of someone taking a pile of tiles, putting them on a wall to make a new picture out of them, is that we would, we would know for certain if we walked into an art museum that whoever, whatever the meaning of this image is, is derived primarily from what that compiler... What it has become, not what it came from. Right, and what the overall is. Yeah. What the overall image is getting. And that doesn't mean you can't go stare up close at one tile and get lost in that one piece of it and get something. But it, we would know it wouldn't be fair and accurate to then zoom out and say, what I saw in this tile is what the overall image is, is pointing at. So even if we just use one small example, in Genesis 1 and 2, you have, uh, I think, two... Actually, Wait, Gen- is this all going to come back to how to talking about the ethics that we see in the Bible as far as gender and sexuality and women and that kind of stuff? Uh, briefly. Okay. I just feel like we need to come back to that because we started with that. Yeah, yeah. So here's an example. Um, you know, we looked at especially those texts uh, in Deuteronomy, the laws in Deuteronomy that I would say if you were to take those laws and implement them in a society— uh, to, to use uh, one scholar's language, it was, um, oh, what was the line? Institutionalizing rape. Uh, yeah. It is, fail those texts, if you apply them literally, I take them at face value, to me fail miserably under our modern ethical standards for the treatment of women. Uh, at the same time, you can look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and if you... If you ignore certain strains of interpretation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that are trying to read male dominance and the subjugation of women into those texts, the idea of, of man and woman being created from the same substance, for, for women to be uh, the salvation, divinely ordained salvation of a man, is, is essentially been, has been, through the history of the church, one of the strongest arguments for the equality of, of women. And then I think a, a, just a basically decent interpretation of Genesis 3 is essentially saying that male dominance over women, especially male sexual dominance over women, is one of the primary consequences of you know what we typically call the fall. So right there, I think here's evidence, and most scholars all believe that Genesis 1 through 11 is, is very obviously one of the the newer pieces uh, of the Old Testament. There was kind of a, a preface affixed to the beginning of uh, whatever the book of Genesis is. Uh, sidebar, I think reading the Bible as a mosaic means that we have to interpret the entirety of it as being much newer <laughs> and younger. The whole argument of how old each text and all that is, to me, is missing the point that doesn't matter how old the originals are if they've all been revised and repurposed into something at a later date, post-exile, uh, living under Greek empire, all that, whatever, that that changes things. That's for another day. Uh, my point here is um, it seems like you could make a very good argument that the uh, that whoever wrote Genesis 1 through 3 is actually lamenting the subjugation of women that he sees in text that he's going to include in the mosaic, <laughs> right? Okay, Even yeah. in his own society and his own religion's laws, he's lamenting that by blaming that on a fall, by blaming that on the man, <laughs> Adam primarily, um, and is going to, to write a creation story which, which differentiates God's plan for women to be equal co-rulers, kings and queens, 
That's the idea of Genesis 1 and 2. Differentiating that from what we see in the world. So, so I think you can make an ethical argument that that just those three chapters right there is telling us not to read those Deuteronomy laws and not to take those rape stories as ethical injunctions on us, right? But that's that's interpretation. I'm saying these passages are going to overwhelm these passages and this stuff here is going to be taken at more face value. God wanted women to be equal, but this stuff over here, we have to sort of take it less face value. That This isn't how we should, we shouldn't make sure that a woman cries out if before saying that she was raped. Like we shouldn't blame her for her rape if we didn't hear her scream. Like there's a lot of subjectivity there. So you are kind of saying every conservative's uh, nightmare that the Bible is just kind of pick what you think is best. I'll nuance that, but for now I want to say, yeah, but also it's every, I think it's every liberal's nightmare. Like we, you know, people, how many people that we talk to around the show that listen to the show feel, and we just talked about this on the conference call, feel simultaneously liberated when we talk about the complexity of the Bible and how it's not just this rule book, simultaneously liberated and almost this despair of, well, well, then what now do we do? Right. We talked specifically about the the sexual ethics conversation of, okay, if we don't have these rules, if there isn't a divine definition of marriage, uh, again, that's another one of like, how do we treat this line in Genesis 2? Is it to be taken at face value? (laughs) Uh, Or I would say, is it to be taken as a command? I think no. Is it to be taken as as a narratival observation? Like that's all up to interpretation. And those two things take us in very different directions, right? But if we come to what the view I've come to, that there... There's no point in the Bible which is saying, hey, God defined marriage and here's God's definition. Well, then that inevitably does mean that now all of a sudden we have a bunch of work to do, homework, to develop our own sexual ethics and to talk to one another about what's working and what's not working. Nate, you've recently used the the metaphor of like taking the crutches away (laughs) and our, our brain is weak. You know, our mental crutches uh, crippled us from developing uh, this sort of moral autonomy uh, and moral intuition. Okay. Pause, pause. You mentioned two things there that I want to make sure people know how to find because they're not, if you just listen to the main podcast, you're not going to find them. One is the conference calls, which are becoming a really, really special thing that we do here. Um, I think we had like, what about 10 of us on a conference call last week. Um, These are for people who, um, our patrons at one of the levels, um, if you if you give, you can jump on those calls. We're going to try to do them once every, I don't know, four to six weeks-ish. Um, and then the other thing he mentioned was something I said on an episode of Utterly Heretical that we just did. I think it's episode four um, of Utterly Heretical, which is a whole second podcast we have where we kind of, we don't edit it. We don't delete anything. We literally just turn the mics on and talk um it's it's pretty different than this show, um, and if you want to know how, you just just check it out. I mean, we talk pretty openly and freely. Um, we mention names, we mention stories that maybe we don't feel comfortable sharing with the masses on this show. So if you want to get um, get in on that, you can do that all at Patreon.com/slash Almost Heretical, and you can of course find that all on our main site, AlmostHeretical.com. It links out to Patreon. So we. Thank you so much, everyone who does contribute. It allows us to freeze up some time for us, honestly, to keep making this show and to do other kind of special things like the conference calls and um, hopefully another Portland gathering later this year, 2019. So we'd love to see you um, in all of that stuff. So see you there.
So I know it's uh, it's really easy to problematize things, uh, especially these days. It's really easy to to take an oversimplified conservative religious culture and just say it's more complex than that. It's more complex than that. And I think we need to do that. We we do that a lot on this show. There are other people doing that. Um, so I don't want the rest of this conversation to just, you know, say, well, the Bible's more difficult and it's more difficult and we don't know what to do. And it's yeah, at all... some point you have to land like somewhere you have to like, yeah, I want to help people actually have something to navigate towards. And I just never want to pretend it's easier than it really is. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, uh, you know, get it, just do a different kind of oversimplification. Like we've been accused, I think of, um, sort of just adopting like postmodern liberal progressive political ideologies and then just like simply conforming the our view of the bible or our view of passages of the bible to like fit that view like i don't think that's that's true to a large extent uh well why why is it not that's because i think we talked about this on the conference call as well but like why is it not that what would you say there's lots of people that get that pushback from family friends church communities why is it not that i think it's a half truth the half true part is that there are just some of us that think science and what our neighbors are telling us about how our ideas make them feel is more important (laughs) than what our church is telling us we have to believe. So that's a part of it. If you want to call that progressive, fine. I'm there hundred percent. When my neighbors or uh, thousands and thousands of people across the world are saying that the traditional view of marriage makes me want to kill myself, I need to listen to that as data (laughs) and that like we talked about the very beginning when we started the show, like that's what it means to be responsible theological agents. Like uh, all of us as, as theologians, amateur theologians, we need to be responsible (laughs) as even just people walking around with ideas, especially if we're going to claim a religion that has the pure ideology, the purest access to divine revelation and theology, we sure as heck better test that theory against reality, right? Um, And now with the internet and modern science, uh, we actually can do that. So that's that. Uh, That's the half-truth. The falsehood piece is like, this is all just more complicated. <laughs> and and part of why we're going to kind of move to this uh, choose your own adventure thing is by design, it's more complicated. The, the text is inviting us to act out moral responsibility to determine right from wrong in nearly every chapter of every book of the Bible as we read through it. It's inviting us to do that. It's demanding that we do that. It's demanding that we be able to take multiple interpretations and views and ideas and weigh them out against each other and even see merits simultaneously in two different interpretations. Is it true that like this is more common in a Jewish understanding of the text, that they can hold tensions? I know I've heard that Holding lot, tension, far, yes, that is, I think, true. Obviously, I don't want to just stereotype like an entire... Uh, ethnicity and uh, religion simultaneously. Um, But yes, there's an inherent uh, acceptance of tension in uh, traditionally in, in Jewish theology because Jewish theology is inherently more narrative and poetic than what Protestant Christian theology has been. Largely, we've allowed Paul's letters to change our views of the entire Bible. So we think all of the Bible is this didactic Western analysis of ideas where what we end up doing is creating lists, doctrinal statements of lists of things that we believe. At least there's not any books that um, systematically 
Yeah, systematic theology the is not a thing. Whole Bible. Yeah, just kidding. But also, like literally every. I mean, what does every Protestant denominational or non-denominational church have on their website? Their statement of faith. Right. What they believe. It's a list of doctrinal beliefs, and then you know the ones we poke fun at or lament on this show are those that just keep adding to those lists and making them longer and longer, and then saying anybody who doesn't sign those lists or his friends with someone who didn't sign those lists or thinks that someone who isn't on the those lists can be a Christian still isn't on those lists, and you just expand it. Like Christian churches don't have poems on their website. They don't have stories on their website, but most of the old I actually saw one the other day and I was almost, I was almost frustrated by it at first. Cause I was like, just tell me that you're affirming. Just tell me that. And I was like, Oh wow, this is like, they're not just coming out and saying what you want them to say in the list form that every other church does. And I thought it was actually kind of cool, but as a church in Portland. So again, like I, I never want to talk stereotypes on a people group. That's not my own on here, but there are also strains within Judaism throughout time, uh, way back when to the medieval period, the rabbis that are doing the same thing that I'm arguing that most Christians are doing, which is uh, you don't have the New Testament. You just have the Hebrew Bible and some other texts that are uh, going along with it. And it's easy to just simply say, okay, these are all to be taken at face value. So I think most people know there's been a whole world of debate over what to do with the Torah laws throughout the history of Israel that predates Christianity, predates Jesus, right? How do we take the set of laws that are all about what to do at the temple? (laughs) How do we put them into real life when we're not living with the temple, right? So you have whole traditions of meals and festivals and roles in synagogues and the synagogue itself and all these different ways of trying to figure out how to take these ancient texts and put them into modern practice. And you've got a whole range of a whole spectrum of approaches to where, yes, this is all literal. We need to get the temple back. So we need to take back the land. We need to get back to our place and institute a temple. And that's when Messiah will come to people who are like spiritualizing it and trying to approach ethical questions from a modern scientific sensibility and hold these sacred texts as valuable. So you've got a spectrum, but here, like, here's why I want to go back to Kletchi's question. How do we know when to take stuff literal? How do we know when to take stuff uh, more figurally, mm-hmm. uh, figuratively, or read uh, typologically? And um, and I want to pose at least some of the problems, and then we can sort of uh, sift through <laughs> at least the beginning of a solution. So one we've just talked about, one of the problems, is just this mosaic problem, right? Like, we don't necessarily have an easy answer of what to do with that Adolf Hitler tile. We don't, when we just come at this thing before we've sat with this for 20 years, we don't know what to do with the story of Dinah's rape. We don't know what to do with those laws uh, in Deuteronomy uh, about what to do when a, when a man takes and rapes a woman. Uh, right? So there's, there's a complexity of that. Does the, does the overall Bible uh, putting its stamp of approval on those individual pieces? Right. Uh, but then related to that is just the sheer complexity problem. Uh, the majority of the conversation we had with Tim Mackey, and if you follow uh, his scholarship, what he's been doing for the last couple of years is, uh, is coming afresh to the Bible to look at all of the very subtle literary linkages between different stories, different poems, different uh, parts of the Bible uh, to other parts. And what he and other scholars have discovered is that this stuff is everywhere and and essentially like i don't think this is an overstatement 
Everything is linked to everything throughout the Bible. And more and more scholars are starting to study the Bible this way and more and more research is being produced where you could basically pick any chapter, uh, any uh, section of text in the Bible and find multiple, not just accidental, but multiple intentional word linkages that connect those to multiple other places in, in the Bible. So again, when I said like, that means someone has painted over stuff, right? Yeah. Someone has added some touch-up paint. Like, it isn't it isn't accidental. When you see specific words uh, that are only used in certain types of type scenes, you know, like when uh, a man meets a woman at a well, and then there's a symbolism between women and waters and well-watered gardens, and those only show up with these other words. Like, when you see it all, you see that it's or not names just... names sometimes, right? Like, we talked about that. Names, with... the the... Like, it sounds weird and like this isn't how we're supposed to read the Bible. And I'd say a lot of times it's not. But the amount of times a word is used in a passage. You've got so many stories where a word is used 12 times or a Mm -hmm. word is used seven times. Um, The numbers 1, 2, 7, and 12 sort of represent like the individual, the the family group. The seven represents essentially uh, like this time, this completion piece. And 12 is this uh, like national representation and then 70 is this like international representation so you get the 70 nations and the 70 gods that rule over nations you have this sort of like you know that could be they could mean 10 different other things along with that or there i'm sure there are times where 12 things happen and it doesn't have a, a symbolic meaning but you have these sort of numbers so then you can literally put a word in a text in a story say in genesis 1 you could put the word uh good in there seven times and people are supposed to catch that. And then if you read another story where the word good is used seven times, or like when we've talked about where someone sees that something is good on the eyes and takes it. Right. So there is this linkage between these rape stories and the story of Eve taking a fruit off of a tree. Right, Right. Yeah. So there's just a complexity thing where this stuff is everywhere, which means anytime, like if I'm reading that rape story, and I know this is like where a lot of us don't want to go and part of me doesn't want to go there either. If I'm reading that rape story and I don't see the connection to the, to the Eve story, do I really know what that story is telling me? Like, hmm. do I really know if I, if there is a, if there is a message that the, that the, the compiler, whoever had its last hands on this thing that put it together for us to approach that's the person whose view is in embedded most uh, fully in this final text. If, if I'm not seeing what that person has done, if I'm not seeing those fingerprints, do I really even know? <laughs> right. right. I remember one uh, episode we did on, uh, on the idea of violence and self-defense. Right. And we looked at the, the Luke story and was Jesus actually telling them to pick up weapons or was this so that they could defend themselves, the disciples, or was Jesus literally saying, pick up weapons so you appear like the very kind of people we are not, <laughs> armed, armed guards who defend themselves, so that when we get blasphemed, it'll be, make it even more obvious that we're being falsely accused of something. So the whole point is you don't carry weapons. I've told you not to carry anything. And now I'm going to uh, tell you to pick up weapons so that you'll be falsely accused to, to fulfill these other passages. And when we looked at that passage to make that argument, <laughs> we were seeing, looking at subtle connections between that story and other stories and, <laughs> and mm-hmm. the way those stories were written. So if you don't see all those things, you can read it and go like, yeah, Jesus told us to carry guns, right? Like, yay, Jerry Falwell. Yay, like, 
you know, uh, armed guard, like 21 gun salute in your churches. Right. Um, so I know it's scary to say if we're not seeing all this stuff, we might not have any idea what the, what the point is. We might not know what, what we're supposed to take away from it. I know it's scary and disenfranchising, disempowering to, to readers to say that, but that's how I feel about that Luke story. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't feel like Jerry Falwell has any idea what that passage is about. Right. Um, so there, there's just a sense where like, that is a massive problem. Problematization is the literary complexity of the Hebrew Bible and the new Testament is so much greater than we've ever accounted for. I actually think like not just the the normal person in a, in a pew of a Protestant church, but most scholars throughout most of <laughs> of uh, history um for a long time hebrew was lost there weren't very many good scholars with a firm grasp on hebrew and then literally because i know it's weird to say that somehow now we know better than people knew (laughs) 1800 years ago but like finding the dead sea scrolls changed everything like it really did change everything because now we have massive amounts of text that confirm some of these things and help to see what the actual original texts were and all that so like scholarship is actually improved now and uh and then there have been strains of scholarship that have taught people to think about the bible a certain way and not think about it in other ways and the literary people like robert alter if you're a bible nerd out there will know that like just a couple decades ago robert alter almost single-handedly revolutionized getting people to see that the bible is literature like there was a long time where that even just that statement was almost like scandalous right Mm -hmm. and now we're talking about seeing literary workings at a level so complex that in if you were reading these books written in in our original language you know if you could read the original hebrew you'd have to read this stuff for 20 years before you'd see a lot of it Mm -hmm. i'm not claiming i see it all right like i'm not claiming i've seen all these things yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's problematizing for me (laughs) every time it's fun because now i get to go like explore all this stuff and it it is fun for me to know how little I'm seeing of a text, but it also humbles me quite a bit to ever feel like I'm ready to say, hey, here's the here's the way to read this. Here's what this is saying. Here's what the Bible says, right. you know? Um, and then, so just, there's all that, and then you add on the translation thing, right? <laughs> like, yeah. these links are Hebrew, ancient Hebrew word plays. And most translations throughout history have not tried, to, have not even known they're there, let alone tried to pass those along into English language translations. So even if you're reading the original in Hebrew, you're going to have a hard time seeing these. Reading these in the NIV, which I think is a wonderful translation for the most part, reading the stuff in the NIV, you're just not going to see it. Don't want to blow away. Be just another quick to disappear. What will I portray? Okay, so let's land this plane. And I would like to come back to sort of what we talked about in the last few episodes, what we talked about on the conference call, which is the gender, the sexual ethics that we see in the Bible. You mentioned at the beginning of this episode that, you know, you're not, I don't know, you weren't sure it sounded like, do we take what the Bible's saying. Did the biblical writers or redactors leave that in there for us so that we're supposed to go like, oh yeah, that's horrible. I think that's a stretch. So I'm just curious, like, yeah, how would you land that? So in classic us, 
I'm going to land this plane by picking it back up again, but not to touch and go is not to called. full height. Uh, just a touch and go. Feet off I think the it's the actual right. term. Circle the runway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So here's, I, I don't, my connection, if you're familiar, when I say choose your own adventure, that's a reference to the kind of books that I had when I was a kid. I remember it was like Goosebumps and some other. I wasn't allowed to read those, so. Oh, man. You should go back to them. Actually, they're probably terrible, but uh, <laughs> I know there's some others. Um, I can't remember the series, but there would be versions of books. Well, or versions of series where, where some of the books would be called choose your own adventure books. So you would read say five pages and these are all like, you know, children's novels. I'm sure there are adult versions out there, but you'd read five pages. You'd get to some plot conflict, right? Like there's a scary sound coming from the next room over. And then you're given two options like open the door or, you know, turn around. And then you go to a certain page to do the one. And it says turn to page, whatever. Did you read both? So then I don't think I did. Wow. That's pretty honorable. I also might even be misremembering how these (laughs) actually worked. Like, I don't know if it was like choose the actions or email us if you know. Yeah. Or I should just go find some of these books, but it was something along the lines of you're going to choose which route to go. And, uh, and then you're literally going to go read different texts. Like if you, if you turn to the left, you go to page 12. If you turn to the right, you're going right, to go to page okay. 17. And you keep doing that. Again, it's an imperfect analogy. But my, my, the main reason I'm saying that is not to just say, hey, this whole thing is subjective and we don't know what's true. Like that's not, I know that I a lot of- I think a lot of, of people think we're saying that. I know. I know that a lot of things I say sound close to that. I know that a lot of liberal scholars, that's sort of the main point I get from them. I hope that's not what you're hearing here because <laughs> uh, that's- that idea doesn't excite me. Um, that's true. We need to see the complexity and subjectivity and interpretation. You know, we need to push back on the like assuming, you know, white theologians are doing interpretation and the rest of us are doing, you know, yeah. feminist interpretation, whatever. We need to push back on that. That's um, what I'm saying. And here's where I had the breakthrough is when we talked with, with Tim Mackey. And I asked him the question because he and I had had this conversation. I had sat with it for a little bit. I asked him the question about the weird story in Genesis 9 where Ham does something in a tent. And when you look at these literary linkages, that I'm, there's enough evidence that when you see three, four, five, six things pile up of word plays and puns, yeah. you start to go, okay, this is very obviously not coincidence. Something's going on here. That the linkages took you in two simultaneously, simultaneous directions. If you read the story as Ham raping his mom to, to seize power of the family line, then it fits in seamlessly with this story of Genesis 1 through 11 and the thing that the serpent is doing in the garden and the thing that the sons of God are doing in Genesis 6 and the Tower of Battle, like all of this. There's linkages there. But then you can also simultaneously see these intentional linkages that are telling you to read this story as Ham raping his dad. Didn't, didn't Mackie say both? Exactly. Yeah. He's saying his point was, and now I've sat with it and I 100% agree with him. And beyond that, his point was that it's written to allow you to actually ask you to see that there are paths going in both directions. Both are biblical. Both are there. They're You're not, saying that's there to show us that like this is these are the kind of ways you should be interpreting the Bible? I'm saying what it means to read Genesis 9 well I'm not going to say literal or what it means to read it the way that it, the compiler, whoever put that text in front of us, the way it wants us to read it is to see that there are two opposed, not just different, opposing interpretations to that text that'll take us down two different paths. 
the blue hmm. pill and the red pill. And both are biblical. Both are intentionally put there. So I saw that for the first time and, and I needed Tim's stamp of approval to say, yes, that's, that's truly happening in Genesis 9. Now, I've spent the last few months reading, uh, especially through Genesis and studying through, through scholarship, and especially in the uh, Genesis and then just the Pentateuch as a whole. There are those things everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're literally everywhere. There's so many stories now I'm seeing. Like one, I, I had no idea. Uh, just I'll throw some examples. But um, remember the story of Jacob uh, dressing up like Esau and yeah. stealing Esau's blessing. Puts the fur on. Yeah. Right. And then Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Jacob and Esau's mom is sort of like the enabler who helps set this thing up. So there's one way yeah. where there's a link that that seems like it's positioning. Rebecca's sort of like an Eve character who's passing along this deception and helping uh, Jacob take something that isn't his. And Jacob and Rebecca are in the wrong. And that's how, like, basically how I've read it uh, for most of my life. Yeah. Yep. Um, that Jacob wrongfully steals uh, the birthright, so he's in sin. <laughs> but there's an entire other way where the text is trying to also get us to see this as Isaac is actually trying to deceive God. Isaac is the deceiver character yeah. who's the serpent. God wanted, in one reading, God wanted uh, Isaac to bless Jacob and not Esau, but Isaac doesn't want to because he is falling prey to this delicious food that Esau makes that is like, again, Eve taking food, forbidden food, and and there's a fall that results from it. So in one reading of the story, Isaac and Esau are the bad guys. Jacob and Rebekah are the heroes. In the very other reading of the same story, Isaac and Esau are the victims and Jacob and Rebekah are these evil villains. Yeah, it seems like I, I see that, and I've, I've said this a lot on the show, but it, it also makes it nearly impossible, I think, to read the Bible. And I think a lot of people get discouraged reading to read the Bible, even to set out on that journey now, because that sounds like, okay, cool, someone spent a few years like writing a research paper, figuring out just that one story there, mm-hmm. how, how it is that way. And even if I agree with them, it's like, well, what's the point of me trying along with my job and my family and all this? It's not my full-time job trying to dig into the Bible. So what's the point of me even like opening this thing up? Right. So I don't know if we should land the plane there or if we should land the plane coming. You still didn't address well, like... Me, I know. But let me... So let me try... Some of the assumption even in... And when we say... You, you just said it, but I've said it too and I feel it. How hard this makes it is I think that's assuming that the point is to get to the right interpretation. Yeah, that's true. Right? And so if if the assumption is there's a right one, we got to get there, then yeah, this makes it way more hard, right? Because now you have multiple options right. to choose from. But this this is where the first reason, the first time I brought this up on the show, it was mainly to push back on the neo-Calvinistic view of human beings and, and this view of total depravity that we don't have the ability to, to know right from wrong or therefore, we don't have the ability to interpret the Bible well. Which would mean we would need that like kind of rule book, answer book, one, one possible way to totally. interpret this and thing. Totally, and then we yeah. need, this is where we, I, I said we'd come back to this. I'm glad we got back to it. The psychology of one supposed expert telling a whole bunch of followers what they need to believe, what God said. Yeah. If, if that's what it is, we need the John Pipers of the world. We need the big megachurch pastors or... You we know, need Mark small, Driscoll to not apologize to his congregation and get right back into preaching. Yeah, or the small Just church kidding. pastor of a church of 15 people. Yeah. But 
there's 15 people in a room and only one of them ever makes decisions. Only one of them gets to decide what's good. Only one of them hears from God in a, in a formal, official way, way, speaks God's word. Everybody else submits to that word. Right. Um, that to me, which is anti Jesus, anti, uh, the egalitarian spirit of the early church, uh, is because this view of anthropology, this, this Calvinistic view of anthropology is exactly the opposite of the view of human beings that whoever wrote the old Testament had, whoever compiled. And I say wrote this mosaic maker, (laughs) this artist wanted the Bible to make us more moral agents. So here's an idea I've been sort of sitting with. I may rescind this a year from now. I think, you know, there's all this, uh, kind of push back on binary thinking now and people want to like think outside of the binary boxes and, and I get that. There are binary, uh, this verse, that all over the Bible, the, especially the, the old Testament. And I think there's, there's a, very meaningful and profound purpose behind placing us at a choose your own adventure crossroads. Like you remember all the imagery in Proverbs and then gets picked up in the New Testament of life as a path and Mm -hmm. turn left or turn to the right. Like life is this road, right? And we have to have the wisdom to, to navigate the road well. Yeah. That's like huge in (laughs) Proverbs. Right. And it's, that's a, a metaphor that's everywhere. And I think part of the point, at least right now, I'm thinking part of the point of the Bible placing us at these crossroads is to help us recognize our own capacity to discern good from evil, light from dark, right from wrong, Cain from Abel, yeah. the the seed of the serpent from the seed of the woman, like to discern those things, to make a moral choice. And then by reading, we keep making choices. We keep enacting that moral autonomy mm-hmm. and it is honing it in us. It's doing the exact opposite thing psychologically, I think, intending to do th- this view of the Bible that I believe Calvinism does to us. Like Calvinism mm. puts, you use the metaphor of crutches. I think the new Calvinistic view that we are all, that at least on the extreme where we are all so morally worthless, we cannot discern right from wrong, that we need a divine rule book, that puts us in a wheelchair. Yeah. Like that makes us so that we, we feel like we cannot walk, we cannot move fully uh, through this world. Uh, we are disabled from from doing something that I think innately we all have a deep desire to, to do, <laughs> which is to be moral agents uh, in the world. This view of the Bible that I think the the Old Testament is presenting to us is actually like putting us through the experience. It's a three-dimensional, um, it's, it's, it's making the reading of the text, the experience where we don't just read the text to, to get the answer from the text. We read the text to actually shape us by helping us practice moral discernment to discern right from wrong. Was Jacob right? Was, was Isaac right? And by intentionally, not by saying there's a wrong road and there's a right road, but there are two roads and we got to figure out where both those roads will take. Um, and, and the point is you humans are to rule the world and even rule over the, the spiritual world, the heavenly realm, the heavenly beings. You need to get good at this. So I'm going to craft a, a piece of art that the way you get good at it is to stand there and, and watch, look at that piece of art or to read through these stories. So again, if we try to land this plane here, I'll land it. As this relates to the LGBTQ conversation mm-hmm. and the, the sad conversation I felt like we, we had about 
some ugly spots in the Old Testament that seem like they're condoning a hideous subjugation of women, even the rape of women. I think you and I sitting here in in my backyard and all of us collectively being able to sit there and go, yep, that is ugly. That is wrong. That's not how men should treat women. That's not how we should treat women. We should have a higher standard than that. That is what the Bible is trying to get us toward. It's trying to get us to to do that. Sadly, you and I have come to that from outside of the Bible. You and I have come to that conclusion. But we from, should have seen that. From yeah, exactly. So what, what, you know, we kind of broadly paint as science. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, actually, when, usually when we mean science, especially around sexual ethics, it's just feedback from real people on <laughs> yeah. how they're doing, right? If we're going to call that science, statistical it's engagement f- feedback, with the actual world, right, yeah, with people. Is pushing us in the direction that I think the Bible was trying to push us to all along, which was be, to become wonderfully good moral agents who can discern right from wrong and will. And we should expect, if that's true, to be better moral agents than some of those who wrote these original texts. And we should expect the overall mosaic maker to have to have been more ethical than some of the people who wrote the texts 500 years before. And we should expect our children and our children's children to, A, be wrestling with different questions in 50, 60 years, but also to be better agents because they'll have more information partially and hopefully they've been growing in a direction you know towards uh in ethically morally to be able to make those decisions better but even just with more data with more information from the world that we get through our generation and that they get through their generation that they'll be um you know we may not even been able to anticipate this conversation that conversations that we're having around lgbtq topics or rape maybe a hundred years ago but you know here we are right i I feel far more confident that the Bible, the, the Word of God, go back to that inspiration idea, this, this thing that we're going to say in some way God helped to come to being in the world. I feel more confident that that wants me to grow, to learn how to discern right from wrong, and to make my own ethical choice and to be able to disagree with those that have come before me, even to be able to disagree with the Bible or parts of the Bible or what it appears parts of the Bible are saying or with characters in the Bible or with some of the laws. Just like I think the Mosaic Maker disagreed with whoever wrote Deuteronomy. <laughs> whoever yeah. wrote Genesis 1 through 11 disagreed with who wrote Deuteronomy. Uh, we talked about that with um, in the LGBTQ conversations on how <laughs> Genesis 1 and 2 is rewriting the issue of uh, intermarriage. But... I feel more confident that the Bible wants me to grow in that than I do that the Bible has a divinely stamped once for all sexual ethic that we should be holding on to. And so that doesn't mean that I should lose humility with my own ability to come up with a great perfect ethic, right? Like we should always, I think, be humble. The point is when, when so many Protestant pastors say that, what they mean is actually you need to listen to me, you need to listen to the Ten Commandments, you need to listen to uh, Paul's, you know, uh, face value reading of Paul's letters um, and not listen to your moral intuition, not listen to what your gay neighbors are saying. And I'm, I'm <laughs> saying like, yes, be humble. Uh, but that is actually, I don't think, what the Bible is trying to do. It, the Bible itself is condoning, go back to that language, disagreement with the Bible and a progression away from some of the views that are inherent in the Bible. So it'd be as if, if we go back to that uh, metaphor of having a Hitler piece, 
that we should simultaneously be able to say, I hate that what that Hitler piece represents. I, I disagree with everything that represents. I, I even want to be able to say, I wish this was never here because there was no Hitler in the first place. And I can be honest with that and not let that one piece of tile hold me back <laughs> from moving yeah. beyond uh, the Hitlers of this world. So, Kalechi, I hope that sort of gets to the... I know it doesn't make it easy. It's still complicated in terms of what to take literal, what not to. But I think seeing that every time you read a passage, you have this crossroads, not just between, you know, who was Ham really sinning against or who was really wrong in the, the Jacob and Esau story, but how do I interpret this passage? Like, what is this actually saying? What is the end all uh, purpose of this passage? Every time we sit down and read, like we have to humbly uh, make a, a collection of interpretive decisions. And who knows, like how much, this is your point, Nate, who knows how much of this conversation now, if we listen back to this in 10 years, we'll be totally embarrassed about the way we talk about things. Embarrassed about, not just, I don't mean Bible interpretations, but ethically, <laughs> like what we thought. Like we should want our kids to be able to disagree and progress with us and, and yeah. all that. So I know it isn't easy. I know that it's still problematized stuff, but I what I want to say is that the problem is part of the point, right? The difficulty is part of the point. The fact that we don't know which road to take, <laughs> which interpretation to land on is part of the point. And so if we can move away from feeling like that's an obstacle to overcome and sit with that being um, part of the goal, then we just get better at the skill of seeing the different options and seeing the different paths and tracing them out to where they lead and then being able to backtrack and walk back a path and, and all of that uh, then that's part of the fun. Yeah, and I just want to end this by saying this will completely change how you are reading the Bible and how you're looking at the Bible. And this that means that when you are then having a conversation with someone who thinks that is the complete wrong way to approach the Bible, there is going to be friction there. And I think some of where these questions have come for me, like Kalechi's question, have come from a trying to come up with some sort of clean rubric or clean like interpretation way to read this thing that we can all agree on even people that maybe don't agree where I land on things they could agree that like this is how we should approach it and the more I've done this the more I've seen that like that is not going to happen you know something else has to happen first before you get to a place of looking at the bible in a different light Um, and it's usually you know some form of some traumatic event or some deconstruction has already happened based on you know outside factors. Something else, something else has happened. Church trauma, whatever it is, gets you to a place where you're open to looking at things in a new light, to reading the Bible in a new way, to even listening to a show like this. And so to then try to take this and, and expect that you're going to be able to have a conversation with someone from uh, your church or from uh, someone who does not think this way at all is probably not going to happen. Um, and I just want to say that because I think a lot of frustration can can come and uh, discouragement can come around that when you try to take maybe ideas um, to someone who doesn't see it this way at all. They're just going to view you as a heretic. Honestly, they're going <laughs> to they're going to write you off completely for trying to craft the Bible into what you want it to be. And so we just have to be honest about that and and call that out. Um, yeah. I'm usually the cynical one, uh, so I know you're trying to have that be the last word, but anytime I feel more optimistic than, than you, Nate, I feel like I need to share that sure. for the world. Uh, reading the Bible this way is really fun. Like, choose-your-own-adventure n- novels as a kid were so fun. Uh, reading the Bible as this uh, highly complex 
opening of doors to new adventures to uh, to train your moral imagination is incredibly fun. And once you get to the point, I know this is new for people. I know it's like you have to walk back a lot of ideas and you're not sure if you accept this or whatever. If you can get to the point where you approach it this way, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tricky. You're not going to know what you're seeing, whatever. It's so much more fun than like reading the book of Leviticus to try to get a literal moral purpose for your life. Like reading it as a pathway to more pathways to more pathways. It is part of why historically, especially in Jewish culture, the Bible has, has been treated, especially the old Testament, uh, and some have used the metaphor of a diamond. Like you just keep turning and it never looks the same. It's always different. Every time you approach it, you see something new. Like that's more of what I want to do with my life than exhaust a book for all of its answers, right? <laughs> I agree. It is more fun. And I would say, you know, Tim Mackey is actually, the Bible Project have become pretty accepted in both the conservative and liberal, um, theologically conservative, theologically liberal circles. Um, they, and that's it's intentional on his part. He's wanted to play that almost to, to where it frustrates me sometimes because I want him to make a stand for something. Um, but, you know, he's become pretty accepted. So I would just say if you have friends, family, churches that you know that are like, oh, we love the Bible Project. They are. He is secretly doing this to you. <laughs> he's <laughs> secretly because uh, this is how he, uh, he reads the Bible. This is how the Bible Project is trying to kind of promote reading the Bible. Um, but they do it in a very, very... Uh, welcoming way to people that are not coming from this tradition of reading the Bible this way. So it's, it's kind of like a gateway drug. <laughs> and uh, so I would just say like, if you know people that are, that do accept the Bible project, you can just kind of <laughs> know in your head and your heart that like, okay, they actually are doing this a little bit and they're not maybe as far away from seeing the Bible this way as uh, you might think, but yeah. Okay. We are going to go play <laughs> probably bocce or something like that and uh maybe record an utterly heretical episode while we do that yeah here's what we're gonna do nate i'm making an executive decision on the spot uh we're gonna have an utterly heretical conversation on uh this is probably one of a million we have and over the rest of our lives but uh passing on faith to our kids okay so if you don't know i said it in the middle of the show but if you don't know how to get that episode we're gonna record it now it'll probably come out next week um, along with this episode that you're listening to right now. You get that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. If you give $10 a month or more, you get that episode. Um, it's a way to support the show, but also get additional content. And we're going to have a conversation about that. So can I just add, uh, we love, we've been trying to slowly work through a collection of listener questions. We love when we get your questions. There's a place on our website where you can go record an audio version of your question. Uh, please keep them coming. We love it. We don't always get a chance to answer all of them, uh, but it helps us think about how we craft the show. And I would just give a special shout out if you have any uh, questions on this conversation or specifically uh, passages that you think could be a choose your own adventure moment read in multiple directions. I would just love to hear your thoughts and feedback. So keep the questions coming. Thanks, y'all. Peace. Bye.